Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman. I invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before I started investing, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today from Ava Labs, Emin Gunsirer, the CEO of Ava Labs, and Kevin Sekniki, co-founder and COO. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, challenging times during this uh, crisis. So appreciate you guys uh, making the time to come on the show and share your uh, perspective. How did you find working remotely in terms of productivity? Can you talk a bit about Ava's kind of working dynamic now that everyone's working from home? Sure. Um, so we and I have always, um, throughout my career, placed a huge emphasis on working closely with people. I have always worked very closely with my students uh, when I was a professor at Cornell and at Ava as well. We were very closely knit. Uh, we worked in close quarters. We, you know, the technical discussions were frequent and all the time and in person. And we didn't have, uh, we had one remote worker for the longest time for the initial first year or so of our company's existence. And so this virus caused a drastic cultural change for us. And I was initially very afraid, to be honest. I thought, well, this is going to completely upend our culture. We're going to go from being the most productive team in crypto, uh, the most creative team, uh, the, the one that's executing the fastest to the slowest because this is the absolute opposite of our culture is everybody being remote. So um, to my surprise, we took maybe two days to disperse and resettle in different places. My The entire team went, uh, went to other locations, to their parents' homes, to their girlfriends' homes, to their other, you know, whatever, wherever else they went. And, uh, and it took only two days. And within two days, we were just as, if not more productive than we were before. But I think really? that, yeah, it's surprising, Tomer. It was really shocking. I wasn't expecting this. And the reason for it, I suspect, is because of our previous culture. We were, we were fairly effective at, uh, at talking to each other. We knew, we knew where everybody is. So the conversations, uh, even though we are remote, uh, are very, very effective, very efficient. So, um, uh, and now that we cut off you know, all of the overhead time, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to go into the office you, uh, you do not spend time uh, talking to people socially anymore. It's just work, work, work. And um, uh, the only thing that we needed to pay attention to a little bit was making sure that people weren't getting cabin fever. Uh, they, they kind of were all kind of staying healthy and happy. Um, and, uh, uh, but overall, yeah, it's been, it's been a great, uh, it's been a very interesting surprise to me and, um, and, a, and a very pleasant one. 
That's interesting. Kevin, how's your experience been like? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's spot on. Um, it is, you know, when you have a group of people working and uh, one of them is uh, suddenly 1% more productive, it's not like you know, that's an isolated uh, um, effect to the rest of the productivity of the team. I think that one additional percent of productivity for one person ends up being slightly more work for another person because there is more output from one individual, which ends up being sort of a, a compounding effect. And all of a sudden, uh, a little bit of productivity uh, higher for every individual in the company ends up being a sort of a quadratic productivity increase um, as far as output, as far as the company goes. So I think we've seen a very, very clear uptick in productivity since being remote. Uh, but I'm not so sure there has been an uptick in the in the mental health of, of everybody. Yeah. Everybody's just so overworked all the time. Uh, so there is both good and bad. Uh you know, if um, I think the productivity is great that we're, we're working so fast, but uh, it also means that we're taking a, maybe a little bit too much work for for our own sake. So uh, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. The mental part, I think, is uh, crucial. Yeah, you you definitely need like you know you you need like in 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 a environment where you get to physically meet with people. Uh, you have a meeting, and then you have these small little discussions on the side. Uh, they go off after the meeting, and so on. And it's it's, it's good for your mental and social health. But in uh, in a remote environment, you have the meeting, and then once you press end meeting, you're done. You're back to your own. Uh, so you don't get that socialization as as in as you would in person. So uh, you can definitely feel that there is a. Uh, it's all about productivity and efficiency in a remote environment. There is absolutely no yeah. opportunity for socializing. Yeah. Um, so would love to learn a bit more about your backgrounds. What did you do before starting Avalabs? Oh, um, sure. Uh, I was a professor at Cornell. Um, I am on leave from my tenured position at Cornell University in the computer science department. Um, my life story is very simple. I, was, I grew up in Istanbul and um, I got a, a scholarship to go to Princeton. And, uh, and it was easier to go to Princeton with that scholarship than to, to attend the, uh, the central placement exam for Turkish universities. And uh, <laughs> so, so I went to the U.S. And, um, and then at the end of four years, I was like, well, I want to study some more. I don't want to pay. Uh, why don't I go to a PhD program? They pay you to, to study. This is like the best deal ever. So, so that sucked me in. And um, I learned I was always fascinated by systems, large systems, complex interacting, uh, you know, composed of complex interacting parts um, and systems with a life of their own. That always fascinated me. So I studied operating systems. I also worked on distributed systems and especially on peer-to-peer -peer systems, self-organizing systems. And um, around 2002, Tomer, way before this crypto thing was a thing, um, I started looking into peer-to-peer -peer systems where, you know, in fact, in every peer-to-peer -peer system, people are supposed to put in resources and, and, uh, and then they, of course, consume resources. And we were having a, a problem with, uh, with file sharing systems. People would download, they wouldn't upload. So they would, they would leech off of the system, they wouldn't contribute. And, um, and so I had an idea back then to, to use uh, essentially magic internet money, uh, a money that is created by no central bank. That wow, is mint back then. 2002, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a fun time. Um, it was minted via proof-of-work mining. So, uh, uh, so I was doing Bitcoin-like things way before Bitcoin. And, um, 
uh, in the way before Satoshi, although Satoshi did improve upon the consensus protocol that I was using. I was using a classical protocol then. Satoshi I mean, uh, I got to ask you, any, any sure. chance you're Satoshi? <laughs> I've been asked this. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, no, the answer is no. Of course, that's what I would say, even if I were, but uh, no, <laughs> right. no it's, uh, it's not me. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I got into it. Uh, that system is called Karma. It's very well cited among academics. Um, but uh, it's, I didn't have the vision to take it as a replacement for the U.S. dollar. And, um, and my older uh, mentors at the time, other professors, came up to me and said, look, you're doing this work. It's cool stuff. But, you know, 9-11 just happened. And people are really worried about Hawala networks. They're very worried about terrorist financing, and rightfully so. You'll never get funding for this. They, they'll all be, always be freaked out. So, so I kind of let that line of work die. And, uh, and I got back into it after, after Satoshi came up and he, he had brilliant marketing, brilliant vision, brilliant uh, uh, consensus protocol as well. So um, after 2009, uh, you know, 10, after Satoshi came out, I took a look at Bitcoin and, um, and uh, with the help of a brilliant, brilliant scientist who was a, a postdoc at the time at Cornell, uh, who is now a professor at the Technion, um, his name is Itai Eyal. Uh, the two of us looked into Bitcoin and uh, discovered that, uh, that uh, a bunch of claims that people make about how secure Bitcoin is were false. Uh, and that if you don't follow what Satoshi told you to follow and you follow this other strategy, you make more money mining than you should. And, uh, and it creates a terrible dynamic for the entire system. So this was an idea called selfish mining. Uh, we uh, made this public. We got a lot of, uh, you know, we got a lot of hate for it. Lots of attacks, um, a lot of death threats, everything. You name it, we got it. And uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, what happened was, um, you know, the Bitcoin community funded their own effort to disprove our work, and uh, everybody who who built a simulator. Uh, said, hey, you know, these guys are right. This is a thing and it's a problem. And, uh, and so ultimately they came around and, you know, then we became invited to all the conferences and so forth. So anyway, so I've then since then worked on uh, lightweight consensus protocols, on making Bitcoin secure, on improving the security of certain contracts on Ethereum. Uh, you know, I've had a hand in quite a few uh, portions of the, the crypto stack. And, uh, and most recently, um, Kevin and I, um, uh, started a company called Ava Labs, and we are building a new coin, a new platform uh, called Ava, and we're very excited about it. Yeah, so we're going to talk a lot more about Ava in a second. Kevin, what about your background? I wish my background was as uh, uh, long and, and luscious as Goon's, but uh, mine is much shorter. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I started off, uh, uh, you know, I, I was actually into Bitcoin very, very early on. Um, so I think Goon has had the idea of um, uh, of uh, digital money uh, and this e-cash concept for a very, very long time. But I think I actually got into Bitcoin specifically before Goon. Uh, and this was uh, just a few months maybe after the, the client had come out, the original uh, Satoshi client. And I had discovered it through some very, very early comments somewhere on Reddit and uh, downloaded it. Uh, some of the early uh, blocks were actually mine. And that was very early on. I was in high school. I didn't understand the, the technology behind it. I just thought it was cool. Um, mined a bunch, lost a bunch, and um, and then you know kind of forgot about Bitcoin for a long time. Um, went to college, did the cryptography research, um, and then 
uh, I did not want to get, become involved in the um, cog machine of uh, of uh, Google and other large uh, software companies. So I decided uh, to continue uh, some of my studies uh, through a PhD, uh, which is where then I went to Cornell and uh, I did my PhD in distributed systems um, at Cornell. Where and then there, that's where I met uh, with Gun and we decided to work on uh, this uh, cool crypto stuff. And um, yeah, and then we eventually, uh, you know, worked on these uh, new new families of lightweight consensus protocols that um, are are this new foundation for building really really fast, really scalable and distributed um, uh, DLTs uh, or decentralized DLTs. I'm not sure what the word here is. Um, and uh, and then we ended up working on uh, on Ava and doing a whole bunch more than just uh, distributed systems research. It's a whole fundamental rewrite of what we think crypto's most valuable value proposition is um and uh, here we are that's really interesting because the the thing that i find really interesting about what you both shared obviously sounds like you both got involved super early and saw the potential in bitcoin and crypto well before most folks but also you know typically people go to academia are not people I would think about as kind of being the first to jump into entrepreneurship, right? Like academia is very convenient. It's a great job, really intellectually stimulating. How did you guys think about, you know what? We actually don't want to be just teaching at the university. We want to be entrepreneurs and we want to build a company. How did that come about? That's, um, that's an interesting take, Tomer. Um, so one of the main attractants for most people who go into academia is that they don't want to work for someone else, that they want to determine their own path in life. So almost every academic is fiercely independent. And um, so that's very much in common with every entrepreneur. Um, so, so that, I think, is a, is a common thing when I look at my colleagues. Um, now, you are right, of course, the academic life is really nice and happy and kind of convenient in its own fashion. And, um, and it's kind of nice to sit back. And if you so choose, you, you, can, you can make an, an easier life of it than, uh, uh, than, than going out and starting a company. Um, on the other hand, you know, with Cornell is a is a top tier research research uh, university. So if you're at one of these universities, you know, the Technion, say Cornell, uh, you know, whatever one of the top top ten universities uh, in the U.S. or or anywhere around the world. So th- those places are already uh, it's fairly uh, intense, uh, kind of like starting a company is. So there are some uh, some uh, traits in common between academics and entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, the thing that got me going was looking around and seeing this enormous opportunity that blockchains represent, that, that we now have the, the, the tools in place for a complete revolution of how we build systems and how we construct, construct financial uh, services. And, um, and it's very clear to me that we're going to get rid of a lot of incumbents and we're going to open up a, a brand new playing field for a lot of new companies to come. So that's going to happen. And then if I look around at the current crypto space, I look at the existing projects, they aren't all that good. And, um, and the people in them, they are the ones who are attracted to the space. Uh, some of them were attracted because they happen to be at the right place at the right time. Some of them are extreme libertarians who want to bring down the state, etc. It's like people with strange quirks are in there and not necessarily people who know what they're doing. So um, 
Uh, so I got attracted because it seemed like somebody, somebody who is in command of the technical side uh, and who understands finance as well could do really well here. And uh, we've built Ava. We've also acquired another company that has a finance background to get the right expertise uh, inside, you know, under our roof. And, um, and so that's our unique uh, magic fix for this. And, uh, and it's really, really, really exciting to be uh, here in, in one of the early days of crypto. Yeah, it's such a fascinating space, right? And there's so much going on. So let's, let's talk about Ava. What is Ava Labs, guys? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, do you want me to take that first stab at it? Go for it. Um, well, Ava Labs is in of itself a software development company, and uh, it's building. It's the primary builder uh, of the of the first uh, set of clients uh, behind the Ava platform, uh, which hopefully will soon be a widespread effort of a very large community of um, of developers and uh, entrepreneurs uh, building on it. Uh, Ava is an attempt at making a very robust, very fast um, platform for what we aim to be the new Internet of Finance. Um, we see the opportunity uh, of, uh, of blockchain technology to really reinvent how um, things of value are programmed, stored, transferred globally um, in the same way as the Internet did to data. Uh, such a thing has not been done yet, and um, I think Ethereum started off as with this notion of um, the internet. No, no, it wasn't the internet. It was the the world computer, and uh, many years of iterations of many applications. Uh, it was clear that uh, that that notion was maybe a little bit too ambitious. Uh, but what it did show is that the ability to create uh, new financial uh, applications through open APIs uh, that encode things of value. Uh, this is a very powerful um, new emerging technology, um, and uh, you know, obviously, DeFi kind of grew out of uh, out of this new uh, technology very quickly in the past two years. And uh, there is value in this. There's huge value in this. We see an opportunity to really make um, you know finance this thing that we program and uh, and and we store entirely digitally. It's not just uh, this archaic thing sitting in silo databases that are opaque and cannot be accessed and need all kinds of both digital uh, uh, sort of uh, mechanisms, but also a manual uh, intervention by lots of intermediaries. We want to upend this entire stack and want to make it open, accessible, empowering to entrepreneurs and fully democratized so that you know we can really build this, this new internet finance. Um, and really what Ava is, the platform, is a technology stack that precisely makes this happen. Uh, and, uh, and it does this through uh, you know, a really fast engine, really uh, a customizable and flexible architectural model, and a whole bunch of other technologies. When you talk about the technology stack, Kevin, just to be clear, is Ava a layer one project? Like, should I be thinking about that as a competitor to you know Ethereum, Bitcoin, and so forth? Or do you position um, it differently? So it's not a competitor because um, it, Ava strictly subsumes both Bitcoin and Ethereum in its capabilities. Um, if I had a lack of 
uh, or if I, you know, if I had a lack of uh, of words to choose from, I would have to be uh, stuck to saying yes, sure, it is a layer one. Uh, but Bitcoin and Ethereum are both monolithic layer ones. They are layer ones that implement a single blockchain, um, which means that it has a single virtual machine with a default set of validators, in which case is some permissionless set of validators that you don't necessarily know about. Um, and you have no other ability to create more flexible uh, types of, uh, uh, of applications that are specific to your needs. Um, and these needs may be really restrictive because you can potentially be deploying really uh, regulated financial assets and they require to be managed by very specific entities um, while being part of, an, of a larger, more open uh, network. Neither Ethereum nor Bitcoin allow such, a, uh, such capabilities, uh, whereas Ava actually does. And in fact, uh, you, everything in Ava, if we're diving slightly deeper into the technology, uh, Ava is really a collection of what we call subnets. Um, a subnet is not quite a blockchain. Uh, it's really just a, a network that defines a set of validators and, uh, and some state. Um, generic, a blockchain could be a, a subnet, but everything in Ava is a subnet. And one of the subnets that you can deploy on Ava could entirely be <laughs> Bitcoin or Ethereum itself. So the Ava network subsumes both Ethereum and Bitcoin. And both of them are, I mean, at least Bitcoin is just simply one type of asset. Uh, there is nothing too special about it. So uh, uh, I, I, would, I would probably say that Ava is much more encompassing of, of either Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. So you do have that smart contract capability uh, similar to what Ethereum is offering, right? Absolutely. And in fact, what we have is uh, the entirety, the totality of the Ethereum virtual machine is essentially an application inside Ava. So we can run full Ethereum applications without having to change a single byte. We're totally backwards compatible uh, inside Ava. And we can do other things as well. We can issue all kinds of other assets. We can issue them in a compliant fashion. And there are things that we can do that none of these other networks can do because they do not have control over uh, the, uh, the network side of things. So um, in, in short, I think uh, to summarize where we differ, Bitcoin is trying to compete with fiat currencies. It's trying to unseat the dollar. And that's a very tall order. It's, I wish it much luck. It's great. It's fantastic. We all started with Bitcoin as well. And, um, uh, but it's trying to do something that's very, very difficult. And uh, Ethereum, on the other hand, is a great experimentation platform. It is not the most mature of those. It is essentially Bitcoin with a, with a different uh, scripting language. And uh, it's, it's opened up a bunch of new universes. Uh, the entire DeFi universe has, op has been opened up thanks to Ethereum. Uh, but it's trying to be essentially a distributed computational platform. And we are neither of those things. We're, we're going after digitization of assets that are not currently in blockchain form. We, of course, subsume what Ethereum does. We want to be able to make these assets programmable. Uh, but we offer more functionality, strictly speaking, than uh, uh, both Ethereum and Bitcoin. And, uh, and we're playing a very different game. We are not going after, we're not trying to attack the fiat currencies. Uh, we're not trying to attack Bitcoin. And, uh, and our uh, flexibility is targeted towards, uh, towards a different uh, class of uh, assets. Yeah, interesting. So a couple of thoughts about that. A, I'm not sure actually Bitcoin is trying to compete with fiat, right? In my mind, at least, and I think many other folks tend to think similarly, 
at least in the near term, right? Like Bitcoin is trying to be digital gold. That store of value narrative that's evolved. And in a way, I think if Bitcoin can, you know, capture some market share, if you will, from gold, that's probably like, I don't think people are going to go and buy, you know, coffee with Bitcoin anytime soon. Right? That can't so happen. That's- that's, yeah, that's, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, that's right. on so many different levels. I tend to agree with you. That's that's going to be quite challenging for, at least for Bitcoin to achieve, right? But, but you know, whether Bitcoin can replace gold to a certain extent, I think that's actually quite feasible, right? And I, and I think like a lot of people who are, you know, Bitcoin believers really buy into that narrative. I don't know if you, if you agree. Yeah, they they do. They do. So instead of keeping your money in fiat, um, they would like you to keep your money in Bitcoin. Uh, and you are right. The store of value narrative, uh, you know, it, we can quibble over whether or not, you know, what is it that they're trying to claw it out of? Uh, is, it, is, it a, is it a token for digital gold bugs? Um, or is it a competitor to U.S. dollar? You are right. You know, it's it's fine. It's not worth uh, trying to distinguish what it is. But essentially, they want to be a, a new class of asset, and uh, and they want to be a safe haven, and they want you to keep some portion of your savings in Bitcoin because and why you might ask? Well, because it is uh, it has a hard cap like gold. Well, you know what? Ava also has a hard cap, and um, there are many other currencies that have. Uh, all of the features that Bitcoin has, plus more, and uh, we having you know the benefit of coming having come uh, a decade after Bitcoin, uh, Ava has uh, uh, essentially adopted all of the good features from Bitcoin, and uh, plus it has the ability to support a much uh, more decentralized system at far higher throughputs and with very very quick finality. So our performance is much better. And uh, and we can do uh, the hard capped asset thing just as well as Bitcoin can do can do it. So we're in an interesting situation. I think we're going to see other blockchains uh, take a stab at this. I don't see why there should be a single winner out of all this. Counter counter to my maxis. I don't think we're going to see that one one coin will dominate all. There are currently two thousand coins. There will be many 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 thousands. Um, Every new project will issue coins. That's already happening, and uh, I don't know if uh, if Wall Street will convert stocks to uh, to tokens. I hope they do, and we're working to make that happen. But even if they don't, uh, ten years from now, so many projects will have issued tokens for funding that that the thing that you will want to buy will not be old school stocks. It will be their tokens. So uh, so we're going to a different world, Tomer, and uh, we'll see who wins. Uh, but we believe that we have a, a very, very good combination of features because we have amazing performance. We are completely decentralized, far beyond any of the existing systems, including Bitcoin. And uh, and we are an enabler for other people to issue digital assets. They can build their own networks on top of Ava. They can define their own digital assets with their own rule sets uh, that are legally compliant for whatever jurisdiction they are in. And so that's a pretty fascinating combo. Sounds like you're not necessarily going after that store of value use case, but I think what I'm hearing is you're trying to build an ecosystem that's, I guess, more similar to what we see right now with Ethereum, you know, more flexible, arguably, than Bitcoin. 
and and we see a lot of activity developer activity right a lot of teams building on top of that uh, platform right now can you talk a bit more about how you're diff- like when you say we're better than ethereum in what like do you have you know higher throughput is it like how do you how are you better sure and ethereum because you know right now the vast majority majority of projects are building on top of ethereum right like we see what's happening you know with DeFi and so forth so curious um you know about your thought process now sure um yeah so you are absolutely right that we're on the spectrum that's uh that's even more extremely flexible than uh than ethereum itself and um, and in a way that uh, a lot of people who are sort of steeped in Ethereum can't even appreciate uh, that flexibility in very much the same way that Bitcoiners did not appreciate Ethereum's flexibility. I think a lot of Ethereum people uh, currently don't. Uh, well, I think they do. They By now, they've understood the Aval value proposition. But let me summarize it for you. Uh, number one. We are using a new consensus protocol, the likes of which nobody has. And so it's called Avalanche. It's a very different style of consensus. It is in direct contrast to Bitcoin mining or Ethereum 1. There is no mining. Uh, In fact, it's instead replaced by staking. Anyone can stake. Anyone can participate in the protocol. And uh, you do not need, you know, useless giant uh, equipment to mine with. You do not need a lot of cheap electricity. It's a very, very efficient process. So that's... So it's a proof of stake uh, consensus algorithm. Sounds like similar to ETH 2.0, or at least what's planned there. Uh, it's it's a proof of stake algorithm, but its operation is very very different from ETH two O. So ETH two O is a classical protocol, and uh, at the you know if ETH two O is is actually successful, if it's delivered on time according to schedule and so forth, and the schedule keeps changing quite a bit, um, it's going to be a sharded protocol, and um, and they're going to try to uh, to deal with scalability by dividing their blockchain into small slivers that they call shards and and executing it there. Um, What will ultimately happen with them, because they're using a classical protocol, they can only have a very small number of validators per shard. About 64 is what they're planning right now. And so power to them, but that 64 number is a tiny number. That's nothing. Uh, They will get cabal formation right there. Second, sharding is a bad idea, in, in my opinion, um, for the obvious reason, if you if you have an unscalable blockchain and it was too hard for you to deal with, and you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna split this up into lots of slivers. Well, what's gonna happen? Well, I'll tell you what's gonna happen. Everyone's gonna want to be on the same sliver as the die contract, and so whatever problem you had before, you still have it, and now you have k of those problems because you split it up into k different slivers. Plus, you have the K plus one problem, which is the inter-shard communication stuff, which slows down everything you want to do. So at the end of the day, let's bring this home. ETH 2.0, if it's successful, if it's not just a pipe dream that's been delayed for multiple years already, if it's successful, it's going to have finality on the order of five to 10 seconds. You're going to click a button, wait for 10 seconds. And that's their idea for uh, how to deal with Web3 uh, workloads. Um, the throughputs are not going to be very high, and the number of validators is 64 per shard, which is tiny. Now, contrast this with Avalanche. Avalanche is a breakthrough in distributed systems. It's a breakthrough that happened only three times 
Classical protocols were one, Satoshi was two, Avalanche is the third new class of protocol. And Avalanche is, uh, is so fast that it confirms, it achieves finality in under a second. So what takes Bitcoin 60 minutes to do, Avalanche does in less than a second for 2,000 participants around the globe. So this is not, you know, on someone's laptop. It's not in a data center. It's not with giant nodes. It's all over the globe with a, with a very large number of nodes. So it's incredibly decentralized. And uh, the protocol is capable of accommodating millions of participants. So nobody else can say that other than me. And um, so what did I say? A uh, very quick finality, one second or so. A uh, very, very uh, scalable um, uh, platform. And the final thing is the number of uh, transactions per second is incredibly high. We achieved 19,000 with our early prototype. Our current testnet achieves 6,500 transactions per second. Visa achieves 1,700. So we're like four times faster than Visa. Operating on a global platform with 2,000 nodes distributed across the globe. So I remember this conversation, Tomer, when uh, the blockchain debate was happening and the core devs and we were all in Malta. There was a big conference there and I was chatting with them and they said, look, you know, we can do a bunch of things. We can try to make the blockchain, uh, the block size bigger, but we'll never win this battle. We'll never achieve a uh, visa scale. And they're right. That technology, the mining technology cannot go there. That's why they're currently researching Lightning and other Layer 2 protocols. And uh, But Avalanche can. It can make that dream come true. It did. It operates right now. I encourage everybody to check it out. The test networks today. How do you do that? I mean, like, what's the... What's, what's the trick? Yeah, what's the, the secret sauce here? The secret sauce. Okay, secret sauce number one. Don't do mining. So mining is a synchronous process. It's a slow process. And it's incredibly inefficient. So if you don't do mining, then what do you do? Well, everybody else goes back to the academic papers from 1980s, 1990s. That's when this area was most uh, discussed among academics. And they pick up a consensus protocol that's classical. So ETH 2.0 is a classical protocol. It's just been updated, but it's from 1999. Hedera Hashgraph, Algorand, these are all classical protocols. And so in all of those protocols, Every participant has to talk to, has to hear from every other participant. Consensus requires essentially all-to-all -all communication. So if you do that, then you can only grow your network to be so big, about 64, maybe 100, for example. Now, in contrast, what does Avalanche do? Avalanche is a very different kind of protocol. It is based on uh, what if some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with gossip networks? Um, these were actually uh, uh, deeply uh, researched by Israeli scientists. Um, so there's a lot of expertise in Israel on gossip protocols. And um, it's very, very lightweight protocols where you don't have to hear from everyone. So, uh, for instance, if it's you, me, and Kevin, um, let's make it a little bit bigger, but you know, suppose we're in a giant stadium. If I were using a classical protocol, I'd have to ask everybody in the stadium. I'd have to hear from two thirds of them and so on. This is a very slow process. But if I use Avalanche, I don't necessarily have to talk to Kevin. I have to talk to enough many other people who then I can be confident will have spoken to enough many other people that Kevin is in on my decision. And that's maybe the insight that I don't have to personally talk to everyone if I talk to enough many people such that I get global coverage and a unanimous decision.
That's really interesting. We see right now a lot of smart contract platforms either about to launch or, you know, recently launched, right? Cosmos, Polkadot, many others. The thing is, though, and I'm curious how you guys are thinking about it, the way I think about it, right, there's, there's two components to this. One is like the pure, you know, tech stack that we just talked about. And, you know, potentially some of these newer platforms perhaps uh, you know, have included are superior to Ethereum purely from a tech perspective. But the other element of this, which in my mind is at least as important, if not more important, is actually how do you go about, you know, attracting developers, right, to build on top of your platform? How do you bring about an ecosystem like the one we see right now on Ethereum? Because, you know, if you have a great technical solution, but not many people or not many dev teams are using it, it's going to be very difficult, I feel, to, you know, significantly go it over time. And we've already seen that with some other projects, right? Again, like I said earlier, right now Ethereum is by far the, the choice of most developers. How are you guys thinking about building that ecosystem and attracting more and more crypto entrepreneurs from Ethereum uh, or mainly from Ethereum to Ava? That's a good question. So let me let me take that. Um, I wanted to, before I answer that question, just make some small corrections. Uh, ETH2 is not going to be in the order of five to 10 seconds. That's actually not possible because they need to do communication up to the beacon chain and they need to have this uh, time uh, for uh, for effectively these fraud proofs to circulate up through to the beacon chain. So uh, the finality here is going to take much, much longer. Right? I think it's going to be in the order of potentially minutes. So uh, uh, if, if it takes any less than 10 minutes or any any less than 10 minutes, yeah, I would actually be quite surprised there. Um, but uh, so let me now jump back to your question. You, that question is absolutely the, the right one. Um, it's all about ecosystem. But let's actually take a look at some data, some factual data, and uh, decouple the entire story of what Ethereum currently has in reality without lying to to ourselves or really anybody else. Um, first of all, ETH1 is just unable to do what it's currently set up to do. Uh, we have companies like Augur and so on that are unable to launch on-chain because they require all these different prediction markets, all these on-chain trading to be happening at effectively less than t uh, ten sec five seconds, right, actually. And uh, Ethereum can only really process into the order of minutes for finality. So things can move around, can change. So it's impossible for any applications that are uh, sensitive to times to actually be deployed on Ethereum. Uh, it's also incredibly sensitive to applications that have a lot of overhead as far as or that require <laughs> instead not that, that have but they require very little overhead so anything that uh, uh, presents high overhead these applications are unable to deploy uh, things like for example high fees lots of applications are very very uh, uh, demanding or rather they're very sensitive uh, towards these high fees that currently eth1, presents. And we've seen across the board, countless fee structures, uh, I mean, f proposals to improve the fee structure of Ethereum, to make it more sensible, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing has worked. So now what does this mean? There's two ways forward. Number one, we continue with ETH 
which is obviously going to be prohibitively expensive and it's just not going to go anywhere. Or we take a look at something better like ETH2O. ETH2O phase zero is no earlier coming than this summer. And when it comes, if it comes this summer, then we still have several um, phases to come. And I have several friends that are actually core developers into various different implementations of these ETH2 clients. And they have told me that at no earlier than 2021, we'll see probably phase one. And still, we still have phase two to go along before we get to Ethereum 2.0. So we are no, no earlier than one year away, probably somewhere like around two years away from a full ETH2 deployment. Uh, okay, that's great. So we have the option to either continue with Ethereum as is, uh, as developers, uh, or which is incredibly bad uh, as far as, I mean, it, it does its job for the most part, but it's, it's prohibitively expensive for a lot of these applications. Or we wait uh, for, um, uh, for, for, some, for Ethereum 2.0 to come in uh, years down the line. Now, you may say, let's look at the data as far as growth for, for ETH1 goes. Uh, you may say, okay, ETH has all of the developers and everything. It does. But the problem uh, is actually apparent or it becomes sort of a little bit different, uh, the, the, the full view, once you start unraveling some of these layers. Uh, DeFi in Ethereum grew exponentially from 2018 to 2019. And from 2019 to 2020, it grew only 138% peak to peak. That is an incredibly low growth. Why, you may say? Well, simply because all the DeFi applications currently are simply just some lending applications for, quite frankly, a lack of a better term, shitcoins. I have a bunch of, I'm, I'm long ETH. I provide a bunch of ETH for uh, having a bunch of, uh, for giving it to people that are doing trading on chain because maybe they can't do trading on various different exchanges. And, uh, and then I accumulate some passive income. That's all it is. That's all the, the, it's the entirety of DeFi. I'm excluding things like prediction markets, which are cool. I'm excluding things like uh, maybe some, some uh, uh, betting applications, whatever it may be. But predominantly, this is all that DeFi is. It's just lending applications. There is Maker, there is Compound, there is Balancer, there is Uniswap. All of them work together to provide liquidity for lending uh, uh, to people that are interested in using these funds for margin trading and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so DeFi in and of itself, if it wants to grow, it needs to crack to a much larger addressable market. Um, it cannot currently do that. Number one, it does not have technology to do that. The, the underlying base layer is impossible to build on. It really is. And number two, the uh, architectural model of Ethereum prohibits a lot of applications in the financial sector from de being deployed on chain. Lots of regulated assets are unable to deploy because they do not have that network layer programmability. Who the hell is managing my data? I don't know. I mean, there is like jurisdictional requirements, geofencing that, that is very important and so on and so on at the protocol level. So... As far as Ethereum is go, yeah, there's a lot of noise being made around DeFi. But if you actually sit down and take a look at the data, it does not support any of the hype uh, or the growth that is that is surrounding it. Well, New platforms, can, can come that, yeah, they can um, as as as, uh, as as underlying platforms. But let's be very clear: we love the DeFi area, and uh, we've been in many many talks with just about all of the major players in DeFi. And um, when we tell them about what we can do, they get very very excited. They have been hampered by the by layer ones, slow layer ones. They've been hampered by long finality times. And suddenly if you go to them and say, hey, I can make your life, you know, I can build you a DEX that's fast. I can build you, I can give you a, a chain where things happen instantaneously or near instantaneously. They get incredibly excited. 
uh, or, or even a chain that is not going to conk out just because somebody's doing crypto kitties that day, they get super excited. You know, with Ethereum, right, you have the advantage of compostability. Like if Maker is already there, if Uniswap is already there, if, you know, Synthetix is already there, if I'm building a new project, I can just build on top of that or I can integrate with that. That's, that's not a problem, actually. So let me explain a little bit on the tooling with okay. Ava. So um, lots of other uh, layer ones have, uh, for better or for worse, um, not adopted the Ethereum tooling standards. Um, in, in my opinion, it's actually for the worse. So you know, JavaScript as a programming language, it's not great. It's a terrible programming language. Everybody agrees on it, but it is the standard. It works. It does what it's supposed to do. In the same kind of notion, the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, I'm not talking about the speeds of the Ethereum blockchain. That's a completely independent. That's prohibitive. Uh, it legitimately is. It does not allow certain applications to exist. But the EVM, the virtual machine, and Solidity and all these, they're fine. They do everything you need to do. Uh, they're not great, but they're fine. Other projects, for example, like Algorand, it doesn't even support smart contracts. Now it does Cosmos. Uh, Tezos implements them in OCaml, in functional programming languages, which is a really nice language to develop in, except that no programmer in this space develops in uh, functional programming languages. Other people have uh, worked towards Wasm, which is a great virtual machine, but unfortunately Wasm is just not being adopted by anybody right now. It's kind of like JavaScript. There is better alternatives to JavaScript, but nobody adopts them. Um, and uh, it's the same thing here. So it's Solidity has kind of won for better or for worse. EVM has kind of won for better or for worse. And what we did with Ava is we wanted to make sure that there was full backwards compatibility. The entirety of the EVM uh, exists on Ava. The entirety of the Ethereum tooling works out of the box. In fact, I made a tweet last night, uh, kind of blew up a little bit on Twitter about how all of these tools, MetaMask, Remix, Embark Framework, Web, uh, Web3.js, everything works with, uh, with Ava out of the box. Um, now you may also say, okay, that's great. All of these people that have developed application solidity, they can already, they can, they get all these fantastic speeds, all this flexibility, and they get the same tooling as Ava. Uh, I mean, as Ethereum, that's fantastic. Uh, but what about the projects that have already deployed on, um, on Ethereum? How are you going to composability with those guys? The answer is there is actually pretty simple. They're not locked in there, right? Maker has actually said publicly several times that they're looking at new chains to deploy because they don't want to be just tied down to Ethereum. So we're building a bridge with with uh, with Ethereum to move exactly DAI over to Ava such that you, then you can build, uh, you can take effectively all the Solidity code that you built for Ethereum and have it available directly with Ava while having DAI supported natively, the official DAI supported natively on Ava. So the entire composability argument that has been made, it's incredibly erroneous. Uh, it's its very much not locked into Ethereum at all. So I think you're absolutely right that one killer use case so far that has emerged in the DeFi movement is, you know, around lending. The other um, use case that I think has really taken off, certainly most recently, you know, even during this um, COVID-19 crisis, is stablecoin. Then we see a lot of stablecoins starting to generate significant momentum, not just Maker. I mean, even Tether, right, is, is going quite a bit. What What's your take there? Like, do you see Ava perhaps as being a way to build the next generation of stablecoins? How are you guys thinking about that? And do you believe in the concept of stablecoins? 
Absolutely. We love stable coins. Uh, Kevin, uh, myself, and uh, with the lead author, Amani Moyn, we wrote the first peer-reviewed uh, paper on uh, a taxonomy for uh, stable coins. And uh, everybody has uh, come to adopt uh, our taxonomy so far. And um, we generally love uh, coins of all kinds, tokens of all kinds, especially those that are backed by real-world assets. So um, uh, we've made a heck of a lot of choices to make sure that people can deploy uh, different stable coins backed by different uh, goods, commodities. Um, so uh, let's see. And we already have uh, plans for uh, stable coins to be issued on top of AVA. Um, but, you know, the simplest thing people can do is they can just go to the platform, play with the testnet and see how easy it is for them to issue their own coins. It's really supremely straightforward. And um, even as we speak, I'm looking at uh, various different coins that people issued on top of AVA on the testnet uh, just today. There are like a bunch that rolled in today. Um, so this is really simple stuff. And um, uh, and we have the, the correct infrastructure in place, uh, both technically and legally, to support high-performance um, uh, high um, uh, stablecoins. Right. Kind of thinking more broadly about the space, what do you see as some compelling use cases for AVA and blockchain in general moving forward? So we talked about lending, we talked about stablecoins. Any other areas where you see blockchain as being a great solution to address um, certain needs that are not really being met right now. And I'm not, again, to be clear, I'm not talking about other crypto projects that exist, right? I'm talking about blockchain in general. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that, that's a great question, Tomer. And um, so uh, uh, let's see, just um, if you were to look at what's happening on Ethereum and uh uh, and what's not happening on Ethereum. You see a lot of experimentation, uh, not that much traction, but the lack of traction has a lot to do with the performance, the poor performance of current day blockchains. When you give people a three to four orders of improvement uh, or orders of magnitude improvement in terms of performance, it's a complete game changer. So interacting with a, um, a website that is backed by uh, by uh, by Ava is an entirely different experience than uh, than the Web three experience where you click a button and you have to wait fifteen seconds. That's a non-starter, and um, uh, you know at the moment uh, Ava, you know we're not publicizing the actual finality times um, just because we know that they will go up. We're giving our, keeping ourselves uh, you know some margin there. <laughs> Being conservative. Yeah, yeah, we say like one second, right? But in reality, it's actually much, much faster than that right now. So it's it's actually a hundred milliseconds. So at that at those levels, you can actually do a heck of a lot. Um, but okay, let me let's go through the different areas. There are many different areas, um, starting with finance, that we are not where we are not seeing uh, much traction for blockchains. Um, one of the main things we would like to do is. Cover, provide the right uh, infrastructure so all of the, the basic things that people are trying to do in DeFi can happen on AVA. So if you want to issue uh, backed coins backed by equities, coins backed by bonds, options, futures, etc., those are super, super, super easy to do on AVA. But that's just traditional instruments. And uh, you know that's just sort of basic. This is this is like this is where we are today. Uh, there are many other kinds of instruments out there that would be traded much more broadly on a blockchain, but cannot because of either performance or legal reasons. 
and um, and people want to blockchainify them. They want to, to tokenize them, but the legal infrastructure is too daunting. So what are those? Uh, corporate debt instruments are too complex. They're very hard to issue as an ERC-20. Uh, there are many other kinds of financial contracts that you'd like to, to put in smart contract form, uh, but they're too bespoke, too difficult to, uh, to control. And you need to exert control over the full life, life cycle of your digital asset. And, and nobody, none of the existing solutions gives you that level of control. We at Ava do, because we give you control over both the virtual machine you use and the network you use to deploy your digital assets. So... Uh, where does that take us? Well, there are large, large areas like insurance, where we know smart contracts will disrupt the incumbents. There are other large areas like identity management, where we can do something much better than, hey, do you want to you know, log in with, uh, with Google or do you want to log in with Facebook? No, I, I want to claw my eyes out and I want another option. And, uh, and it's possible with Alva. There are other uh, alternative assets yet to emerge that are supremely exciting. Um, what are these? Well, depending on the jurisdiction, they go from the boring traditional stuff like fractionalized real estate, which I happen to really like, by the way. Um, like the idea of buying Israeli real estate is crazy insane to me, right? I would never, like, I would never yeah. be able to. <laughs> um, I would never be able to navigate the system and buy something, but I can totally see myself. Uh, visiting Israel and, you know, having visited Israel recently and come back thinking, I want to to buy into a fund or I want to buy a fraction of real estate in Israel. That's perfectly doable if only I had the mechanism to do so and if only I had the the uh, the easy, quick reach um, and, and low friction uh, means of buying, buying in. Yeah, um, so the real estate use case is really exciting. Right, and there are different aspects to it, not just ownership, but there's also the financing for real estate. There is a lot to be done there, um, but but it gets much more exciting than that. Um, you know, the income sharing agreements are fantastic, uh, completely virtual assets like CryptoKitties and uh, and other digital collectibles. These are fascinating. Um, or you know, let's just end on one note. Uh, take the IoT use case. So who's doing IoT on a blockchain? Well, IOTA is a centralized thing. Nobody's actually actually using it. And um, if you actually talk to large companies that have IoT use cases, they say, look, I would love to deploy on a blockchain because I wouldn't have to operate the back end. I don't want to operate the back end. And uh, that's not where my value add is coming from. So, um, But I can't defer the functioning of my set of devices I've sold to a network I don't control. So it's just a no-go for them. But if they build on Ava, they actually can control the network on which they deploy their backend nodes. And, uh, and so that changes the game and uh, it opens up new frontiers for us. This is why we don't see the existing coins as competitors to us. We can do things that they cannot. I want to shift gears a bit. Typically, when I have guests come on the show, we talk also about fundraising. Right? There's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the podcast and some of them are not sure how to approach the fundraising process. Now, I know you guys have been successful and attracted um, a group of uh, savvy investors to Ava Labs. was wondering if you can talk a bit about the process and maybe share a few best practices uh, with listeners about you know, stuff that you learned going through this process and what worked, what doesn't work. 
Yeah, so let me let me just very briefly summarize what we did. Uh, we did one round, and um, and I think this is going to sound funny uh, to some of your listeners uh, because you know when I was a grad student for much of my career, uh, you if you had an idea, you would do a seed round, and people would give you two hundred thousand dollars for your seed idea, and then you'd come <laughs> in for the next round and so forth. So, so you know where I'm going with this. We did one round. <laughs> has changed. And, and, and things have changed. In our seed round, um, uh, we, we raised $6 million for the seed. And uh, we kept calling it the seed. And our investors were like, look, don't call it the seed because, you know, the amount is a little high. People will dislike you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you kind of skip the seed. This is your Series A. So, um, so we did one round. And um, in that round, we had Andreessen Horowitz. Um, as you know, they, they require no introduction. Um, and uh, in addition, we had uh, crypto-oriented funds like Polychain, Metastable, and uh, some number of angels. And um, so I've raised from you know the large, big industry leaders. I've ra- I've raised from uh, the subgroup, you know, the the specialized funds. Um, I've uh, I've dealt with and spoken to hedge funds versus VCs, and I've also raised from angels. So, uh, so that's my background uh, in terms of experience. So, you know, ask away, and I'm very happy to share what what I think worked well and what I what I would suggest to others. Yeah. So, I mean, no, no specific question here. I was just wondering if if you have a couple of you know best practices or how did you go about it? For instance, like how much time mm-hmm. did did it take you to complete the fundraising? Mm-hmm. Would love to also learn how you decided on on that amount you just mentioned that you wanted to raise. There's a lot of, uh, I think, different schools of thoughts there. So it's just right. curious how you went, you know, how you guys went about it, and uh, how did you guys think about, uh, you know, being more efficient with this process, which obviously was successful in in doing so. Yeah, it was. It was, but uh, um, I mean, it was successful. I wouldn't say it was efficient, and I don't know that we did optimal. <laughs> <laughs> we did the optimal choices. Um, here is what I would say to a younger me. Um, for one, I did not, so I, I vacillate. So let me just kind of put things on the table for people to think about. Um, I raised 6 million at a time when other people were raising for it, for essentially there was a, a copycat Chinese team. They raised 120 million by copying the exact same idea and mostly just trying to sort of, you know, uh, take our table scraps and, and run with it. So 120 million. Wow. Yes, yes. And uh, and they failed, by the way. It's been uh, less than a year and a half and their CTO left and they are nowhere to be found. I think all of the money they raised has, is going to dissipate. Um, but uh, let's see. So what did I do? I raised only six. I decided I did not need more than that. Um, so some days I think, you know what? You know, I had so much open interest, you know, around 50 to 100 um, I could I could easily have raised fifty to hundred back then in one round, and I didn't. Um, so some days I feel like, yeah, maybe I should have that way. I would never have to worry about uh, the cash. Um, other days I feel like that was the best thing I did. Yeah, why not? Why did you decide to raise a much smaller amount? Um, I I figured that I would be able to raise later, um, even more at a better valuation for me. So. Um, so I ended up retaining control over much of the equity. We did an equity plus token round and um, I ended up uh, retaining control over the company. So that was good. And uh, in many ways, actually, the, the reason why not raising too much is great is A, 
uh, you end up stealing from your own future. Other people don't want to come in if you raised an enormous pot uh, in earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, two, you want to be a, or B, you want to be lean. Um, the we are one of the fastest moving, most driven teams by far in crypto. I don't know if anybody of anybody who comes close. And that's partly because of this culture of, you know, we, we just execute. We've got just enough money to for our own, you know, next set of goals. And um, we got to deliver and we have therefore delivered uh, on point every time. So, um, so it's made us, uh, it made, it's made us better people. And um, not raising too much is a, is a huge, huge asset. There are companies out there that raise that insane valuations that now cannot go to market because the market took a downturn. They raised that $4 billion. If they go out today, they're going to be worth $200 million. And so all of their investors are going to go crazy and they're going to start, you know, the lawsuits are going to start and so on. And so they just can't go to market right now. And uh, that's just not the case for us. We are in a very comfortable position because I did not raise uh, at insane valuations. Right. How did you think about approaching, you mentioned you have a combination of more general, I guess, traditional funds and crypto-specific funds as backers. How did you think about the two? I mean, did you... Did you find that it's easier to talk with the you know funds that are focused on the space, or was there a particular reason why you also wanted to go beyond that and and talk with the more traditional funds? How did you think about that? Yeah, um, I think I wanted uh, essentially all I wanted was I, I I want people that I can call upon when I need advice. That's all I really wanted, and um, people like or or when I need an introduction, I want to be able to say, "Hey, can you please introduce me to so and so?" And they should have the Rolodex and the pool to do so. So for me, that meant you know this mix of some angels who are very well connected, um, some angels who are not at all connected to crypto but are connected to their own ecosystem in gaming and in entertainment and so forth. So we we kind of covered the 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 map there. Um, broad is good. You never know when, uh, you know, the world is a tiny place. So you never know um, when something is going to be useful. And having broad tentacles uh, across the sort of the intellectual space is, is really good. So I'm, I'm glad we did what we did. Um, and um, if you go to a traditional VC shop, um, they typically have processes that are a little slower than crypto. And they, uh, they might not be geared up to possess crypto. So just depending on how they raise their own funding, they might not be able to hold tokens, for example. So that's one consideration. Um, one bit of advice that I would give to anybody in the crypto space is to be very, very cognizant of the difference between venture capitalists and hedge funds. So this is underappreciated because they, they, they blur into each other and a lot of hedge funds make noises online and they present themselves as investors online, which because they are investors, um, but they're different. Uh, venture capital firms, they have a commitment to uh, succeeding with you. They, are, they have a commitment to growing your company and uh, they have longer time horizons. And hedge funds typically tend to be much, much shorter and, um, and they want to flip coins. So, uh, and there are many, many, many hedge funds out there that are very questionable. So, um, so I would, uh, and we see this in crypto all the time. People go to, you know, no name, no name hedge funds or just, you know, Chinese hedge, uh, whatever, uh, hedge funds that just flip coins. And this all happens at the expense of retail investors. 
And that's not good for our industry. It's not good for anyone. So stay away from those. It's also not good for the project. You don't want your project to open up and uh, go public and you know your tokens are now tradable. And then the first thing you deal with is a bunch of your investors are dumping on you and your retail is angry at you. So that's not good. And that's a very common pattern that has plagued the area. So I'm, I'm proud to say that we steered away from that. That's a very good point. A very important distinction. One last question on this before we wrap up. Um, did you get a chance? I know you raised before, obviously, this crisis, but one of the things a lot of, um, you know, when I engage with entrepreneurs these days, right, one of the first things a lot of them are asking is, you know, am I, am I open kind of to fund them remotely? Or, you know, is it a necessity to kind of meet in person, of which obviously oh. is a big challenge these days? So again, I know you raised before the crisis, but I'm just wondering, did you have an opportunity to raise from some remote investors or did you find that it's really important, maybe not just for the investors, but also for you, given, you know, this is a long-term commitment on, on both ends. Uh, did you find that it's better to meet in person? Just, just curious for, you know, some of our listeners who may be wondering about this. Yeah, good question. Um, so how has the climate changed with the COVID uh, crisis? So um, back when, uh, you know, way before the whole virus situation, I found that unless I met with, uh, with uh, investors, it was very difficult to close. Um, your typical investor wants to look at the founder in the eye. They want to gauge you by your body language, by how you carry yourself. And, um, and that final meeting is essential. And um, so I had to fly all around the world to establish those connections. And, and I, I'm, I'm so glad I did, by the way. Um, not, we didn't really take their money. As I said, we took money from only a small number of investors first round. But I did talk to a fair number of people then. And having those relationships in place is essential. And uh, it takes a lot of time, but it's very well worth it. Um, now, more recently, like at the moment, we're doing another private sale of tokens. And uh, prior to going mainnet with our system. And uh, as we do this round, uh, we opened up within two weeks. Um, the entire allotment was spoken for. And then the virus thing happened. And now it's a different world. And so the question remains, like, so can we close? Can we do things remotely? Um, again, to my surprise, yes, absolutely. And uh, remote has not been a problem. Um, I would say that the biggest issue that we face today right now are deferring opinions on uh, how the macro, the, the general macroeconomic climate is going to pan out. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's uncertainty. People are afraid. You don't know what's going to happen. Are people going to start dropping like flies? You know, and there's like a lot of misinformation out there. And initially people were freaked out. And so um, it's very human, very understandable. So, uh, and also, you know, on the side, I don't know how the situation is, uh, you know, across the globe, but at least in the U.S., the media figured out that virus fears sell. And so they're, they're propping this up. There are experts who want to be relevant and they come on TV and they say something like, we're going to live with this virus forever and ever. And these are all incorrect scientifically. And um, much more interestingly, I think the economic climate, because especially in, the, in, the, in Europe and in the U.S., they put so much money into the economy and that money is somewhat sitting idle at the moment, but it's, it's a, sort of like little sticks by, by the fire. It's like kindling by a, by a fire. It's going to come roaring in to a giant conflagration all at once. 
and and this whole thing is going to take off. Every asset class, other than real estate, I think, other than commercial real estate, is going to go go uh, mooning very soon. And so um, that's my opinion. And I think uh, there are a bunch of people out there who realize this, uh, and there are a bunch of other people who are confused, who are like, "Why are stocks going up?" Well, I, this is exactly why. There's a lot of money around sloshing in the system, looking for good investments. So to wrap up, um, if you have a great idea um, and, and a credible team and a, and a strong vision that captures people, this is actually not a bad time. There is a lot of money out there and, uh, and uh, remote is not a problem. Um, you do not need to be present. In fact, the virus gives you a reason to not have to visit these uh, VCs firsthand. So that's good. Um, but the main thing you have to fight right now is uh, concern about, about the general state of the economy to come. And, um, and there are people out there who are still kind of anxious. And, um, but I think they're going to wake up very, very soon. And it's happening even as we speak, um, that people are realizing that we're going to have a, a big boom up ahead. Right. So the caveat, I guess, is just, you know, to put it out there, obviously not an investment advice. But I think you're right that dynamics seems to be changing in terms of fundraising. You know, TBD, whether that's something temporary, just, you know, during this crisis, or maybe something that's going to last much longer than that. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely agree with what you said. Like, I think, I think right now it seems like more and more investors are becoming at least more comfortable with, you know, meeting entrepreneurs via Zoom or any other platform and remotely and, uh, you know, make decisions that way, at least in the short term. Kevin, I mean, thanks so much for coming on the show. Fascinating discussion and, and really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today and talk more about Ava and uh, your insights about the space. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.